0: welcome again to christ the king sunday here at lord of grace uh we're gonna every people thinking about a day like today every every people has a story every group of people has a story of the things that happened in the past the trials and tribulations the heroes the obstacles overcome those are the things of the, that make an us and us we have a shared story And for Christians, our story is in the Bible. That's our story. And it goes back a long ways. And I realize sometimes that I'm not sure we always know that story as well as we should. And I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just that we tend to skip over certain books in the beginning that are very influential. Um, A little bit like that Simpsons episode where Homer thinks he's going to die, so he sits down to read the Bible and he opens it up and then he gets through and moth begot Jehoshaphat Jehoshaphat begot and then he falls asleep and thinks that's the end and he wakes up because he didn't die because the special Japanese fish was in fact cut the right way but that's what happened so we miss a big part today I'm gonna go back a little bit and tell a little bit about that story remembering that story of how the people of God ended up going from mostly nomadic sheep herders to having kings and how that worked out because today is Christ the King Sunday and Christ the King Sunday is the newest day in our church year most of the parts of the church year go back to the middle ages or earlier Christ the King Sunday goes back to the 1940s and it came about because as if you remember your history in the 1930s and 40s Europe was turning to lots of people who didn't use the word king but took a dictatorial power for themselves and there were a lot of Christians who were cheering it and there were a lot of people going how did it get to a point where Christians were cheering this kind of stuff so they said maybe we've forgotten who our king is maybe we need a yearly reminder so there was Christ the King Sunday came about, because they forgot in that ancient story that kings, by whatever name, are not God's plan. Kings were not God's plan. So how did it start? I'll give you a chart. started with the patriarchs, right? Abraham, and then his, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, And Abraham, the wandering guy who came from Mesopotamia, went up and over to the land that we now call Israel. And then within a couple hundred years, his descendants would be in slavery in Egypt. They would come back and they would be in 12 tribes. And when they came back, each tribe got a chunk of land, except the tribe of Levi. They got the priesthood. So there were 11 chunks of land divvied up and they had no central government. They didn't even have a central council for dealing with things. They weren't even like my Viking ancestors who would get together under a big rock once a year and they would get together and settle their grievances. Although my Viking ancestors sometimes settled their grievances in ways that would violate our constitution using battle axes and such things. But this is what it was. They had tribal heads. They kind of had families, but they didn't have a central way of working things out. And so what they would do in their problems is they would turn to the prophets or they would turn to these people called judges who were like prophets who went to war. And they would turn to them and they would say, God, we are being attacked. What should we do? And then the prophet would speak and the judge would fight. Remember Samson? Samson was one of those judges. Right? They tied you to the kitchen chair. They broke your throne and they cut your hair. I can't sing anymore or YouTube will give me a copyright violation, I'm sure. But that's where that comes from. That's Samson. He was a judge. He would go out and go to war. Apparently he would do it with uh, uh, the jaw of a donkey, creative weaponry. But in this era, when the tribes came back, is full of violence, and the books of Joshua and Judges go into pretty grisly detail about it. Don't show those books to your atheist friends first. Have them read the Gospel of Luke and the letters of John first before they get to the intertribal warfare where body parts get cut up and all this grisly stuff. But part of what was happening is that the people of God at that time, uh, they, there was a neighboring, there was a group of people called the Philistines who moved in. They were Greeks. These were the same people who fought the Trojan War. They were from that, that era. And they came in with brass weapons and armor, shiny weapons and military techniques. And here the Jews were these kind of roaming hill people and these Philistines, who are not actually biologically related to the people in the Gaza Strip today, these were Greeks and they had their better technology, and they were constantly raiding the Jewish people. They'd go in and raid a village and sack a village, and they'd kidnap some people, and it was constant fighting. Meanwhile, on the east side was more fighting. We had the Moabites, the Elamites, the Amalekites, the Aramites, the Hematites, the Azerites. There was no Hematites or Azerites. I made that up, (laughs) but you can see They were sandwiched by enemies. Wars, wars, and more wars. And the story would go that when the people would turn to God for help in their trials, God would grant them victory. When they were faithful and put their trust in the Lord God, they would get victory over the Amalekites. But yet, the people were not satisfied. They looked around. They saw Pharaoh down there with his big, shiny chariots. And nobody raided Pharaoh's cities. And they looked to the north to the Hittites. Nobody raided their cities. They were a big empire. And they looked around and they saw these big empires that, that everybody respected and feared. And they said, Why can't we be like that? What will make us like that? Glorious and feared? A king. We need a king. So they went to the prophet Samuel and said, Samuel, we need a king. Go tell God to send us a king. And Samuel wasn't very hip on the idea. So he went to God, and God said, "Eh." Tell him what it's going to entail. And Samuel came back to the people and he gave them a long list. If you want to read it in the book of 1 Samuel, it's a long list. This is all the things the king's going to do to you. He's going to tax you and he's going to take a percentage of your crops and he's going to take your sons to fight all his wars. Then he's going to take more sons to build his building project. Then he's going to take whatever daughter he wants for his harem. And then he's going to go and he's going to make you do labor and labor and work. And he's going to do this for generations. And you're going to cry out in pain and the Lord God won't even be there for you. And he comes back and tells them, and Samuel reads them this long list and they go, Yay, give us a king. (laughs) Because the thought of being oppressed by a king was less scary to them than, than the thought of, continuing to suffer the humiliation of these neighbors who kept beating them up, and the warfare that was internal. This is what the Bible says, 1 Samuel 8. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's what they got. Kings, Saul, David, Samuel, or Saul, David, Solomon, and a whole long list of them. And almost all of them were rated bad by the later writers. Even David, the supposed great one, was constantly at war. Of course, if you look at the map, you'll see that the territory didn't really change much under David. He unified, got tribute and stuff from the neighbors, but never really took over a lot of those lands to the east and on the strip. But even with David constantly at war, and of course we know the story how he took some other guy's wife and offed him. The era of the kings would continue then for hundreds of years, and it would end when foreign empires would come in and level the country and haul people away. And after that from about 587 BC until 1947, there was only a 100 year window of independence for the Jewish people. That's a long time to be living under somebody else's yoke. So here's the question then you gotta ask. Why would you, if you had the choice between the creator of the universe and some guy who inherited a job from his dad? Why would you pick the guy who got his job just because of his dad? Well, that's the question, isn't it? And there's two reasons, and they're the same reasons then as the same reasons why people now lean to want kings or rulers. One is trust. They not really think God would do it. I mean, we say, okay, I can, tr- I, I can, I can trust God, but, I, you know maybe at some level, maybe God's kind of really left the building, you know. It's easy for you to say, you know, preacher, that I should trust God with my emotional or marital or personal problems, but trusting God with, you know, politics and power and money, come on, you've got to be realistic here, you know. And maybe I'm not really sure God's really going to help. At least that's what you kind of think deep down, Right? Because if you did really trust God, would you find the idea of giving power to an authority that appealing? And the other part is imagination. We can't often imagine a world without authorities who rule over us and say they protect us. We say, well, you know, that peace and love stuff, God, that's all nice. That's nice, but... You know that's you know finding finding life in the cross. You know that that worked good for you, but in the real world, there are real powers and they're a threat to me. And I need real world solutions to real world problems. When there are people out to get me and want to take my culture and my way of life and my country and etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, I can't risk turning to God. You know I believe in God, but. Uh, when I'm facing that Philistine spear point, uh, right, I need a powerful authority to beat back and quash the enemies for me. I heard a politician on TV say that if he got elected, he was going to destroy his enemies and root them out like vermin. I was like, dang, Stalin. What are you going to do is start having purges? You're going to find everyone who didn't vote for you and send them to North Dakota to lay bricks? I mean, geez. I mean, you or I can disagree about what the marginal tax rate should be on investment income. You and I could disagree on how much spending should be done for free lunches or public parks. It doesn't make us vermin. But calling people vermin isn't a policy thing, right? That's just designed to get you scared, right? It's that voice saying, you need somebody to protect you. I'll protect you. Right? That's the playbook that's been used by every dictator in the world for centuries past. You're under threat by those people. Give me power, I'll protect you. Oh, and of course, the enemies will fear and respect us, right? When you are afraid, you're not good at using imagination. Uh, that's just uh, that's partly psychology. They've proven that. But when you're freaked out, you're not good at using imagination. It's why firefighters and paramedics spend so much time training, right? Because you can't go running into that burning house and beams are falling down and go, ah! You're a horrible fireman if you do that. You need to go in and go. All right, I can grab that. I can get that kid. What if I knock that down? I'll chop that with an X. You have to not only think quickly, but you have to be creative about it. You know, somebody's arm's sitting there bleeding. You can't be freaking out. You've got to go, hmm, there's three different kinds of bandage. Maybe if I tie it this way. Maybe if I do that. There's a certain creativity to emergency room things. You can't do that if you're freaking out. You need to be calm. You can't have imagination when you're thinking in crisis. All right. Let's keep the story going here. The story keeps going, of course. We get Jesus... He didn't take any political office for himself, no power, even when the devil offered it to him. He didn't want to build his own empire. He didn't want to create Christian law that would force people to do the right thing. And the early Christians were notoriously unpolitical. They, 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 weren't really, they didn't have a whole lot of allegiance to Rome. They weren't necessarily trying to destroy it. They weren't leading rebellions but on the other hand they didn't particularly have a lot of faith in it and they didn't like to offer sacrifices to it and so their kind of indifference was often perceived as disloyalty or maybe a lack of patriotism by rome and so that's often why they would get persecuted and then of course by 300 a.d christianity becomes the empire's religion and what do we get kings 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 and more kings right And we get such great inventions as the hundred years war and the 30 years war and well we could go on and on and on right wars 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 kings 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 and just like the old ones most of them were bad because well of course if you aren't willing to kill people you don't stay king very long right and uh, you'll get you'll get replaced by somebody who will and somewhere along the lines they forgot the words of the prophet Samuel that God does not want kings. It is idolatry to give that power to somebody other than God. There was a lack of imagination about what the world could look like without authorities and strong men. But a world without kings is God's will, it's not some newfangled idea from the 60s. It was not invented by a hippie in a Volkswagen bus with a bag full of orange pills going, dude, man, let's peace in. I mean, granted, we would not never have had to worry about that guy doing anything to you. He took that peace thing quite seriously. But it isn't a mamby-pamby idea. This is in the Bible. Right? And part of a prophet's job, part of the prophet's job when they came along was to help us get our imagination back and to help re-envision a different world so we're not locked into thinking we only must have this kind of a that we must have kings that's part of what imagination is for and that's what the prophets do it's why they write in poetry a lot right you go through the book of isaiah page after page after page poems i try sure imagine what people must have been like listening to that right here's isaiah he actually started as the high priest Step, so he steps out of the temple and he's got his fancy robe on, and people are like, Isaiah, what should we do? The Assyrians are here to kill us. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And the people are probably going, huh? But later they wrote it down because the point of the poetry was to get your imagination going to get you to think in a different way that's why the the point wasn't to give you the exact name of who was going to be the virgin who would conceive the point was to know that god was going to do something let's look at our prophet for today the prophet ezekiel he gives us a description of what god is going to do to rescue the people from exile and occupation and what does he use? He uses an allegory. He uses an allegory. He talks about shepherds and sheep. There's so much Bible, shepherds and sheep. This must be, it must be so easy to preach in, like, Wyoming. <laughs> or New Zealand. I don't know. You don't have to always be telling people what sheep are like. But why talk about sheep? Because, again, he's trying to get you to use your imagination about what a different way of being structured could look like. The details aren't the point the point is to free yourself from that rigid thinking so what does he say in chapter 34 thus says the Lord God I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep so I will seek out my sheep I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness I will bring them out From the peoples and gather them from their own countries and will bring them to their own land what an image what makes this king-shepherd ruler what he is because he gathers the poor and the lost and the sick and the needy together it's what he does for those in most in need that makes him the king isn't that interesting that's what makes the shepherd the shepherd but it goes on right Because the prophets always have a hard edge, too. They're not, these guys are not mamby-pamby. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them with justice. Get back. There's a hard edge here, right? But it's not about the enemies of the tribe. It's about those who are overly powerful not getting it. So instead of giving them more power, God's gonna take it away. This means the word of God, the world that God has envisioned, the world of this good shepherd is a world that doesn't have powerful people who rule and dominate others by force but only the lost sheep who gather together under the grace of God. That's not mamby-pamby, that's the Bible. So don't lose your imagination. Never stop imagining, never stop dreaming, never stop problem-solving that God could have a way through this, whatever this is, don't get caught up in being made to feel so threatened that you're tempted to give your loyalty to some strong man. Don't give up the idea that a world with just people and a loving God who takes care of them can be a reality. Amen.